This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Dist is sponsored by Sherry's Berries. Treat your mom to something sweet this Mother's Day with a gift from Sherry's Berries. Fresh berries dipped in chocolate start at $19.99. Visit berries.com, click on the microphone, and use the code GIST. That's B-E-R-R-I-E-S dot com and the promo code GIST. And by CVS Health, where health is everything. CVS is working to save thousands of lives, one pill at a time. Every year, lives are lost because people don't stand medication as their doctors prescribed. So CVS Health created industry-leading programs to help people stay on track. Visit cvshealth.com to learn more. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, April 28th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Martin Luther King said a riot is the language of the unheard. Here is Martin Luther King saying that to Mike Wallace on CBS 1966. I think we've got to see that a riot is the language of the unheard. I've heard this quote a lot, a lot during Ferguson, a lot within the last 24 to 48 hours. It's a powerful quote for the words, but mostly for who says the words. All we have to give is blood, sweat, toil, and tears. Great words made greater still because they were said by Winston Churchill, not Clement Antley. I do not pretend to understand the moral universe. The arc is a long one. I cannot calculate the curve, but from what I see, I am sure it bends toward justice. It's a pretty good sentiment. Surely it's powerful, as voiced by Theodore Parker, who's well-known to students of transcendentalism or to universal Unitarians, but when it was recrafted by Martin Luther King and restated as the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice, then it became more powerful because the words were sharpened, but also, I think, because Martin Luther King was the one who said them. It is not the oath that makes us believe the man, but the man, the oath, as Aeschylus once wrote. So Martin Luther King said a riot is the language of the unheard. It's a good way to understand and empathize with those rioting. But MLK did not excuse rioting. MLK did not say that if you condemned rioting, then you were being compliant. Standing against violence was as much his creed as was his literal belief in God. Here's what else he said in that interview, courtesy of CBS. It was the summer of 1966. Every summer, we are going to have this kind of vigorous protest. My hope is that it will be nonviolent. I would hope that we can avoid riots because riots are self-defeating and socially destructive. I would hope that we can avoid riots, but that we will be as militant and as determined next summer and through the winter Uh, as we have been this summer. On the show today, I return to the Baltimore riots and the spiel, and some more Aeschylus awaits us there also. But first, let's lighten things up in the brain as we tighten things up in the trousers and loosen things up on the dance floor. It is the science of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Sherry's. Sherry's berries. You ship a Sherry's berry to your mom. 
it's the perfect gift. What does it mean to be a perfect gift? I was once told two things. One, the perfect gift is a gift that someone doesn't know they want, but when they get it, they really appreciate it. And then someone else further told me, barring that, they're gigantic strawberries covered in chocolate and sometimes with nuts. So between those two things, you can't go wrong with Shari's Berries, a great gift for Mother's Day. And for my listeners only, Shari's Berries is offering giant, freshly dipped, delicious, from personal experience, I can attest, delicious strawberries, starting at $19.99, over a 40% savings. Go to berries.com, click on the microphone, and type in my code GIST. My kids have been not fighting over the berries. There are berries aplenty, and I say, you know, two, two per night, and maybe we sneak another one. Not in the morning. It's bad to have the chocolate in the morning, but a berry in the morning is good. So maybe dad will take the hit. Dad will have a little chocolate in the morning, and then you get the giant, delicious berry. The kids are fine with that. Anyway, forget the kids. It's Mother's Day. Give her a berry. The only way to get the amazing deal, freshly dipped strawberries starting at $19.99, an offer for my listeners only when you use the code GIST. Visit B-E-R-R-I-E-S dot com. Click on the microphone in the top right corner. Type in GIST. Go to berries.com. Click on the microphone and enter my code GIST. The Trinity of Pleasure. Once known as wine, women, and song, now it's been degendered and the genre of music has been expanded when people talk about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But heretofore, when people talked about sex, drugs, and rock and roll, they maybe didn't do it in quite a scientific manner. Zoe Cormier does in her new book of that name with the subtitle, The Science of Hedonism and the Hedonism of Science. Zoe's here. Hey, Zoe. Hi. Nice to be here. Let's talk about duck vaginas. (laughs) Go ahead. You take it from there. That's I just always wanted that to be the first question I asked a guest, and so it is. They are biologically unrivaled. That's what I saw in that duck's t-shirt at spring break. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's an unfortunate fact of duck biology that a very common mode of reproduction is called forced copulation, also known as rape. Mm-hmm. But uh, these are animals, so let's not humanize them too much. Uh, it's called forced copulation, and it's a very common way for males to sire offspring by forcing themselves onto the females. And the females, in turn, have evolved to have these spiraling vaginas that have lots of these little cul-de-sacs, little holes, so they can divert assailant sperm into different pockets if they don't want to uh, be fertilized by a rapist. Males, in turn, have evolved penises that swirl and spiral, and it's been uh, pretty much an ongoing genital arms race. But why, evolutionarily speaking, because you write about how unsuccessful uh, duck sex or duck when it's when it's forced copulation is, what's the evolutional explanation for why ducks do it this way? What advantages does this have? Well, you're more likely to be able to have sex with a female if you force yourself than if you don't try at all. That's what I saw in the male ducks T-shirt. Yes. Uh, I mean, the good news is that 60% of matings in this species of duck are consensual. So only 40% is forced. But it turns out that 4% of forced copulations result in offspring. So it doesn't tend to be successful. So it does appear that the females are winning the arms race at the moment. Yes. I was wondering about that. And there are also, you know, there's an analogy to human anatomy. And this is, I think, why we read or are fascinated with the stuff about animal sex. Like, it's not too much of a leap to go, oh, yeah, I do that too. But there's a lot of thinking that the uh, the penis of the human male has this uh, 
structure that takes away the sperm of rivals? I didn't even realize that. Yes, it's just a theory, but uh, a biologist uh, in this state, New York, Gordon Gallup, uh, he believes that the penis has evolved to have a bell on the end so it can displace the sperm left by previous suitors. So you find in lots of animals these kinds of weird bits of anatomy. So, for example, echidnas have uh, what's called a hemipenis. It's uh, split at the end. There's lots of very strange penile artifacts in lots of different animals. Um, Quite a number have spoons and various tools on the end that they use to displace the sperm of other males before they deposit their own. So Gordon Gallup believes, and some other people agree with him, that perhaps the human penis has evolved to do the same thing. Now, in general, there's a lot of ignorance when it comes to all sorts of uh, sex, sexual knowledge. In general, is uh, uh, our penis knowledge far exceeds our vagina slash clitoris knowledge? It seems to, your book yes. seems to indicate that it does. Absolutely. One of my favorite factoids is the fact that the father of anatomy, Andreas Vesalius, did not believe in the existence of the clitoris. Uh, when a rival, um, another anatomist, this was in the Renaissance era, his name was Rialdo Colombo, and Rialdo Colombo claimed to have discovered the clitoris. He thought that he was the very first person to what ever did Mrs. find... Columbo say? <laughs> <laughs> I bet she thought, woohoo! Um, he was not the only person who thought to have discovered the clitoris. Another anatomist at the exact same time did so as well, and... Rialgo Colombo described it as so pretty and useful a thing. And Vesalius shot back with, you can hardly ascribe this new and useless part as if it were an organ to healthy women. Keywords, new and useless. Yes. And then you have details of how, for instance, in Turkey, they describe and ascribe different uh, clitoral sizes as, you know, relating to the personalities of the women who possess those clitorises. Yes. uh, I love this. Um, Very commonly in European history, it was thought that a large clitoris was a marker of degeneracy and would lead to lesbian predilections. Right, this is And Europe, so it's yeah. also known as the tribate clitoris, if you have a very large one, and it was deemed to be homosexual and a sin. Uh, in Turkey, on the other hand, they thought that large clitorises were a blessing and that women who had larger clitorises would have more easy orgasms and would be more pleasant in their disposition. These were known as Chickpeas. Chickpeas. Smaller uh, smaller clitorises were known as lentils. That was the medium-sized clitoris. And And the small clitoris, the sesame. The sesame. (laughs) The sesame. The sesame. Do you think, I mean, obviously we were in the dark ages for so long, but do you think that the vast majority of what we need to know about human sexuality is being performed or will soon be upon us or already has been done, or we're still in the dark ages in a lot of way when it comes to our knowledge of sex? I would say that we are definitely still in the dark ages. We have obviously made incredible progress, and there's an enormous amount that we have discovered. But it was only in 2009 that Australian urologists mapped what they call the bulbs of the clitoris. So it turns out that it's not just a tiny visible bean on the surface of the body, that it actually is a subterranean wishbone-shaped structure. And it appears that it grows in size the more you use it and as you age. And whenever I give lectures about my book to older audiences, I always see silver-haired women look at me 
and nod approvingly and go, yep. <laughs> and when you give lectures about your book to guys and you use the phrase rubber boomerang, <laughs> which is a great one, which is basically what science, how science now thinks the uh, penis works during sex. Do they nod approvingly? <laughs> <laughs> they just always look a bit mystified. Yeah, so I, I do think, though, we've made huge progress, and we're, but we're still finding out astounding things. And as with anything in science, you know, who knows what we're going to discover in the future. I would say, however, that the high prevalence of things like vaginal bleaching, uh, which is a new trend that's taking off in India, where it's thought that paler skin means that you're of a higher caste. Uh. So women are now bleaching their labia. Um, the big ascendancy in labiaplasty and plastic surgery to look a certain way. Um, the incredible prevalence of male insecurity regarding penis size is you know, a constant. Um, so psychologically, I don't think we're making much progress. In fact, I think we're becoming even more retrogressive. Yeah. And if you ever want to see a, the look of a look of horror on a woman's face, talk about vaginal plastic surgery to your grandmother, and the general expression would tend to be, "Why? This was never something that women were insecure about before, but now it is." And people are doing away with the actual sensitive tissue, the actual nerve endings that provide pleasure. We are not one of those kind of radio shows that has, you know, funny drops or sentences, but can we take the phrase, talk about vaginal plastic surgery to your grandmother and just like use it off and Andrea in different conversations? Can we keep that? <laughs> of course. Would that be fine? Could that be the only drop on this show? Talk about vaginal plastic surgery to your grandmother. It's a celebration. Sex is this great thing. Let's not trust the uh, Puritans on that. But when it comes to drugs, I think from reading that chapter, would you agree with the statement that for every good thing that drugs give, they almost always have a drawback? I would say that drug addiction and misuse would be a byproduct of the need for pain relief. You know, life is stressful. You know, from the moment you leave your mother's body, there are is an alarming number of stressful and painful circumstances that you're going to have to endure. And considering how long plants have spent manipulating the nervous systems of animals and especially insects, it would be shocking if we didn't do drugs. We're hardwired to appreciate them. Uh, and it's a matter of reining in your base instincts and your uh, immature behavior in order to overcome your biology. So let's go to the rock and roll part. Rock and roll, that's the phrase, but it's really a stand-in for music. Does music stand apart from other kinds of art that have transportative properties? Because this is all about how music is a little bit different and there are neurological explanations to music. Can we not say those things about, you know, a great play or even a, music, a moving portrait? From my point of view, music is the weirdest. I think that it's easier to explain. Imagine that you're an alien mm -hmm. and you come to Earth and you're looking at the different things that people do. You can understand the appeal of theater because you're recreating the human experience and you're telling stories and you're trying to shed light on daily life. You can look at visual art and say, oh, I get it. You're playing with the receptors in your eye and you're paying, you know, if it's a landscape and you're paying tribute or if it's um, a nude painting and you're celebrating the human body. Music 
would be the most difficult thing to explain to an alien. It would just seem so unbelievably bizarre to see random noises put together and make people feel things, to make people excited, to make people... Why would you be willing to spend hundreds of dollars for a ticket? Why would you be willing to pour enormous amounts of energy and resources to make louder and louder sound systems? It's the most inexplicable of the human activities. I think more than anything that we've ever done, actually. I think of all the things that the human species have ever done, music is the most bonkers. And that, to me, is why it is, in a way, the most beautiful. Well, what are they finding out about music in the same way that they're finding out, like, how drugs work? Have they figured out how music works? Uh, there is an enormous amount that we will continue to discover about how music works. We've only just started to scratch the surface because neuroscientists only really started to look at music in the 90s. I mean, some of the main discoveries really were, you know, in the last 10 years or so. I would say that some of the most amazing things they've found so far, number one, is that music stimulates every part of your brain, more parts of your brain that are stimulated by any other activity. Even your brain stem, mm -hmm. the ancient part of your brain that you share with reptiles, that is stimulated by music. They've also found that when you listen to music, all the neurons in your head will pulse in synchrony. And I don't mean they pulse in time to the music. I mean, they all start to harmonize their firing. And they don't really know what this means, but it does seem to be significant. And I mean, this is awesome. They found that when you listen to music, it stimulates the release of the neurotransmitter dopamine from a part of your brain called the nucleus accumbens. And this is also what happens when you take drugs and when you have sex. In a sense, there is a bit of your brain that is hyperwired for sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That being said, I should add that, that you also will see the release of dopamine from something like um, high sugar containing food or from addictive gambling behavior. Or your sports team wins. Or <laughs> no, Seriously, yeah. 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 But uh, certainly music does have a primal quality. So in Spinal Tap... <laughs> The best, drummer. Best, best film about the music industry ever, 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 ever. Pretty much. The drummer, one yeah. of the drummers, one of the 30 drummers, said, I don't know if it was Stumpy <laughs> Joe, I forgot which one, but he said, interviewed in the bathtub, said, you know, if I have the sex and drugs without the rock and roll, I'd be fine. I could live without the rock and roll as long as I had the sex and drugs. Do you think of the uh, triad, two go together more than others? Are they all equal on the Mount Rushmore of hedonism? That's a very good question. Um, I would say it's up to each individual. You know, some people are asexual and they're not interested in having sex. And that's a pretty sizable portion of the population, actually. There are certainly plenty of people who have never been interested in drugs and never will be. And that's OK, too. And about 4% of the population doesn't experience music. It's called amusia. And they don't hear what the rest of us hear. It's more than being tone deaf. It's like being colorblind for music. Mm. So I guess it depends on the individual. For me personally, I would say music is the one thing, of these three things, it's the one thing I can't go more than three hours without. I have mm -hmm. music on all day when I work. I would say sex and drugs do not go well together. One usually leads to the other. <laughs> they can facilitate yeah. the experience, but it doesn't mean that they enhance the final output. Right. <laughs> so then I'm going to take it that uh, Zoe Cormier, author of Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, but not necessarily in that order. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Zoe. Oh, my God. My pleasure. This episode of The Gist is brought to you by CVS Health, where health is everything health. It's a team sport. 
CVS Health doesn't just fill prescriptions. They partner with doctors, hospitals, and employers to help patients manage their conditions for better outcomes at lower costs. Visit cvshealth.com to learn more. Getting a pill into a bottle? That's not hard. CBS Health helps get them into mouths, right? You get a prescription. Does that mean you take your prescription? Many Americans who have prescriptions fail to stay on them. So CBS Health created industry-leading programs to help people take their medications regularly. Could help you, could help older members of your family, ways you haven't even thought about. So visit cvshealth.com to learn more. Prescription synchronization, right? You could fill prescriptions with fewer trips to the pharmacy. Medication review, the pharmacist review medication regimes to help prevent major drug-related events. There are digital tools, a suite of digital offerings to integrate adherence support into daily life. So it takes it seriously. They've been thinking about it. They can and will help you if you will give them a try. Visit cvshealth.com to learn more. And now the spiel, a riot of interpretation. There are four main distinct ways of thinking about the riots in Baltimore. I will arrange them on a continuum. Well, you know, obviously there are as many ways of thinking about it as there are rocks to throw or batons to wield. But here are four signposts that go from the greatest opposition to the most acceptance of the unrest. And these positions are within the bounds of, let's call it, mainstream opinion. All right, one. Violence and rioting is wrong. You will be arrested. The reasons don't matter. The actions do. Two, violence hurts your cause. And while we know you have anger, we will not stand for violence. We will not listen to the complaints of those who are violent. Three, we understand where this outrage is coming from. There are deep societal problems that need to be addressed. But please, you're only hurting the very communities you live in. Four, what do you expect? This is the voice of the oppressed. So what you're beginning to see is that the adherents on either side of the spectrum, one and four, are taking the worst examples from the other side, holding it up and saying, see, this is what we're up against. So some of the people who are most sympathetic to the rioters might have had a spasm of outrage over use of the word thug, even though the mayor of Baltimore used it. Maybe it's overused when describing athletes, NBA players, some other kinds of protesters, nonviolent ones. But you know what? There is a difference between people who are really angry and just want to burn that CVS down and people who actually do burn that CVS down. And thug isn't the worst word in the world to describe those committing the most heinous acts of violence. Or apply it to a policeman who gave a rough ride to a detainee whose spine has been partially severed. The word applies there too. But anyway, the conversation is somewhat taking the worst case put forth by the other side and pretending that worst case stands for the whole, like this MSNBC headline. Blame game. GOPers fault Obama lack of fathers for Baltimore violence. This is a really misleading headline. There were quotes from two of the 5,047 presidential candidates. One of those presidential candidates came from highly remunerated rodeo clown Donald Trump. That was the blaming Obama part. 
can't say if Donald Trump says something stupid, that's what the GOP says. And then Rand Paul in a radio interview, and Rand Paul's the most progressive Republican on policing issues. He did talk about things like family structure and morality being factors behind violence in the streets. And now is not the exact time to put your finger on that. But he didn't only put his finger on that. And, you know, President Obama has said other things exactly like that, just not right now. I in no way believe that Rand Paul thinks the breakdown of the family is why there's violence in the streets. Let's take the other side of the continuum. We have, not surprisingly, Fox News. But I want to say there is something surprising or was something surprising going on on Fox News. I watched Shepard Smith, Fox's main news guy, and he offered, I swear during his coverage, he offered excellent context. He offered insight. And it's especially valuable because it was on Fox News. We've got a major American city that has decades of turmoil within this neighborhood. Decades. You heard the stories from Doug McElway a little while ago Mm -hmm. of people being arrested for nothing, of a violent crackdown for years and years, of them feeling powerless and hopeless Mm -hmm. and nobody listening to what they were saying. One quarter of the youth locked up. Clearly there is a big problem. Then all of a sudden an African-American man is taken into a vehicle and he comes out of it and dies and you get nothing from authorities except a suspension. And then those who would do harm take an opportunity to do harm, and here we are. But it's what has happened between all of that and today that has led to this. That was him correcting the chattering hosts of their afternoon show. During prime time, he was anchoring events to the point where I think a transcript of his show versus a transcript of Anderson's Cooper show would not have looked any different. That was last night. Today, foxnews.com, their top story is this. Social media analysis suggests links between Baltimore and Ferguson violence. Exclusive. An analysis of social media traffic in downtown Baltimore Monday has unearthed striking connections to the protests in Ferguson last year, according to a leading data mining firm that shared its findings exclusively with Fox News. The firm, which asked to remain anonymous because of its government work, found between 20 and 50 social media accounts in Baltimore that were tied to the peak period of violence in Ferguson. While further analysis is being conducted on the data, it suggests the presence of professional protesters. One account, which tracked the recent union protests in New York City as well as other disturbances, tweeted photos of Freddie Gray's funeral and used language that seemed to anticipate violence in Baltimore. So this data analysis firm, this anonymous data analysis firm, found one account What account? I don't know. One account that seemed to anticipate violence. Who who is this Nostradamus of news? This foreseer of 140 characters? Who could possibly have figured out that an unarmed black man being killed by cops would cause outrage and possibly violence? What form of four-dimensional scatter graph plotted against a y-axis of algorithmic Bayesian analysis did it take to find that connection? Such a thin, a, a tissue-thin line of connectivity between Ferguson and Baltimore. I don't know, maybe stopping in Staten Island for a breather. And then the signal to know, how did they separate the signal to the noise? You know, the signal of a guy screaming from a severed spine, the signal of a guy yelling, I can't breathe. I mean, it takes some next generation data mining to figure out the meaning of what that could possibly be. Hey, can I ask your sophisticated prediction machine to tell me, is Donald Trump going to say something stupid in the next 48 hours? He is. You guys are amazing. But to find the connection between Ferguson and Baltimore, my God, you know, Honestly, Fox News 
is so into conspiracy theories that they will invent a conspiracy theory to explain just a plausible, mainstream, impossible to ignore in front of everyone's face theory, right? I hear an actor from the South wanted to kill Lincoln. Might be John Wilkes Booth. Could be noted Clinton pal Kevin Spacey. Or Booth, maybe Spacey. Algorithms suggest Booth. Can't confirm. Further analysis needed. All right, after that, I need a bit of a cleanse. Here we go. 1966, Robert F. Kennedy's running for president, has a scheduled campaign stop in Indianapolis. That night, he gets the news that Martin Luther King has been killed. Rioting is anticipated. Kennedy asks, has the crowd that I'm about to speak to been informed? They have not. Falls to Kennedy to talk to them. We'll hear the gasp right now as he addresses the crowd from the back of a flatbed truck. And that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. Then he talks about his brother, like King, killed by a white man. He talks about how they, everyone in Indianapolis, everyone grieving, could turn this into hate and violence or how they could embrace King's cause, which is peace. And then he quotes from memory, quotes Aeschylus. Even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own day despair, against our will, comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. Ancient words, useful words, then and now, made all the more profound when you realize that RFK was, two months later, also killed. RFK said he believed, he said in that speech, he believed that the vast majority of white people and the vast majority of black people want to live together and want justice for all in our land. That's it for today's show. When it comes to being producer of The Gist, Andrea Salenzi's resolve is not to seem, but to be. Success is man's god, but The Gist's managing producer is Joel Meyer. Once an eagle, stricken with a dart, said when he saw the fashion of the shaft, with our own feathers, not by others' hands, are we now smitten. So too, saith Andy Bowers, The Gist's executive producer, when shown the effects of red meat on the human colon. To get the gist sent to you by email every day, an email that you can play the gist off of, sign up at slate.com slash gist email. And as the poet also wrote, words are the physicians of a mind diseased. The gist is happy to be at least the nurse practitioner. Thanks for listening. Talk about vaginal plastic surgery to your grandmother.